Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week we ended on a particularly grim note, the murder of innocent boys at the hands of their power-hungry uncles. With this heinous act, Clothar and Childebert ensured that the line of Clodomer would not rise and challenge their position. There were now three kings of the Franks, and it would be from one of them that the future kings of the Merovingian dynasty would descend. Would it be the eldest, the powerful Theuderic, the middle son, the long-overshadowed, slimy Childebert, or the youngest, the decisive, ruthless murderer of children, Clothar? Let's find out in episode 8, One King to Rule Them All. When Alexander the Great died, only 32, he is said to have left his massive, newly conquered empire, quote, to the strongest. After his death, his generals would rip it apart, carving out new realms for themselves, and none of them would prove strong enough to reunite his empire. We have already talked about the uncertainty created by Clovis's carving up of his own kingdom, but it was done with much more clarity and much less anarchy than Alexander's. Unlike Alexander, however, Clovis had time to plan, and seems to have thought his sons would be capable of sharing their realm, and for a while he had been somewhat right. They had schemed and plotted, but none of the brothers yet had the audacity to challenge each other openly. Killing a couple of children was one thing, but ordering your Frankish troops to kill your brother's Frankish troops, well, that was a more difficult prospect. Over two decades had gone by, and still, all-out civil war had been averted. But, as I'm sure you're expecting, this Cold War would eventually come to boil. After the death of the princes, Gregory tells us of the exploits of Theudebert, son of Theuderic. Theudebert has already come up a few times, and during the first two decades of his father's reign, we can see him operating as an effective military leader. It seems Theudebert was a loyal son, and having an adult Merovingian on his side might have helped Theuderic have an upper hand over the years. He could rely upon Theudebert, but the other brothers had to take action themselves, their children still too young to take active roles. But, as we move into the 530s, we can see the generations start to shift. Theudebert takes center stage in the narrative, likely because his aging father was unable to campaign as he had in his youth. Luckily for Theuderic, Theudebert was more than capable. Gregory places the murderous actions of Clothar and Childebert in stark contrast to the more traditionally kingly activities of Theudebert. He embarked upon more conquests, rolling back the Visigoths, who had been encroaching into their former lands to the south, as the Frankish kings had been busy in the north and east. Clothar sent his son Gunther to accompany Theudebert, but Gunther appears to have abandoned the campaign swiftly. This is odd behaviour for an ambitious young Merovingian prince, and might indicate a sneaky attempt by Clothar to leave Theudebert vulnerable, hoping he might die facing a dangerous opponent like Clodomer had before him. The death of Theudebert would have greatly weakened Theuderic, 
and thus given Clothar a chance to seize a more dominant role in the realm. Theudebert, however, had no intention of following his late uncle's example into an early grave. Moving on without his cousin's support, he took the stronghold of Dio, sacking it and moving south to the town of Cambrier. Parking his army outside the gates, Theudebert offered the people of the town a choice. Either surrender to him, or he would burn the whole place to the ground and take everyone captive. In the midst of this bloodthirsty rampage is our first taste of an occurrence which will become both increasingly common and increasingly significant. I'm going to call this phenomenon, Sexy Woman Distracts King and Causes Political Turmoil. Luckily for us, Gregory has a bit of a romantic side and loves chronicling love lives and drama around the lustful Merovingian kings. He has no problem attacking the queens and mistresses with all of the venom of a conservative clergyman, but he also gossips about them incessantly. Now, according to Gregory, in the besieged town was a woman named Deuteria. She was rather taken by the strong, majestic king outside the walls, and luckily her husband was away, wink wink. So she sent messages to Theudebert, offering to turn the town over to him. The king accepted her offer and marched his troops in. Upon seeing the city give no resistance, Theudebert ordered his troops not to harm anyone, and ordered that the woman who had delivered the town into his hands be brought before him. When Deuteria arrived, he was instantly struck by her beauty and fell in love, and they began their affair that very night. Now there are a few things to note about this story. First, Gregory would definitely love a little Nicholas Sparks, especially if a few murders were thrown in to spice it up. Second, the story probably skips over a couple of key details to focus on the apparent love story. The fact that Deuteria could order the surrender of the town probably means her husband was the noble of the area, and his absence was likely to join a Visigothic army that was operating in the area, trying to limit the damage of Theudebert's campaign. This means Theudebert might have just taken the man's wife as war spoils, somewhat less romantic. But the story remains interesting because of one key fact. Theudebert was already betrothed. Not just to anyone as well, but to the daughter of the King of the Lombards, a rising power currently sitting in Pannonia, but soon to move themselves into Italy itself. According to Gregory, Theuderic had arranged for this marriage, and we can assume that the old king would likely not have been happy to have his son marry a random woman he had met on campaign, even if she was a noble. The Merovingians may have been polygamous, but there seem to have still been some expectations around proper behaviour. In a similar vein, the kings also had many mistresses and illegitimate children, but to openly have a child with another man's wife, while you have a foreign princess at home still unmarried, seems to have been a step too far. But Theudebert didn't seem to care, at least for the moment. This story has a few more twists in it, and the twists reveal just how shallow and callous the kings could be with matters of the heart. 
Theudebert took Deuteria with him when his campaign in the south was over, and settled her in Clermont-Ferrand. He didn't marry her, however, possibly out of fear of angering his father or the Lombard king. She still bore him a son, Theudebald, but for the moment was stuck as his mistress. Events, however, were about to change everything, for in 534, the old king Theuderic finally died. The eldest son of Clovis had reigned for 22 years, and had been the most important king in the west for most of them. Upon hearing of his father's illness, Theudebert had left Deuteria and rushed north. He knew, with the great king gone, he would be vulnerable. Would his uncle seize the chance? You bet they would. The way Childebert and Clothar moved, swiftly and aggressively, to attack Theudebert after his father's death reveals two things. First, they obviously had been planning for this exact moment. Second, the speed and decisiveness really makes it seem like the only thing that had been keeping the brothers from attacking each other had been Theuderic's oppressive presence. His dominant position might have been tenuous at a couple of points, but the old king seems to have been enough to keep his greedy brothers in check. But no more. As Theudebert rushed north, he heard news of his father's death while still on the road. Quick on his heels were his uncles, who joined forces and seemed determined to kill yet another nephew and split yet another inheritance between them. But... Theudebert wasn't a boy waiting to receive a crown. He was a grown man with years of experience, and he used his hard-won knowledge to the best of his abilities. Knowing that the combined forces of his uncles were certainly too much for him, Theudebert seems to have made a rather brilliant move. Reading between the lines of Gregory's account, we can guess at major parts of the campaign. In moving so quickly, Clothar and Childebert likely only had their personal retainers, their ludes, at their disposal, along with whatever force they could muster along the way. They likely were counting on crushing whatever hastily gathered force Theudebert had, and knew the longer he was on the throne, the harder it would be to remove him. Theudebert, left with only his own troops, knew he couldn't face them, even if his father's nobles had time to join him, they might simply choose to wait and see who came out on top. But Theudebert had one big advantage, his father's treasury. Gregory simply says he paid his uncles off, but this doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering they would have gained the whole treasury if they had just continued with their campaign. More likely, in a move reminiscent of his grandfather's campaign against Ragnachar, Theudebert bribed their ludes, depriving them of the ability to attack him immediately. Now, knowing that they couldn't take him out quickly and he would have time to establish himself, the two brothers likely decided to take the gifts offered by their nephew and retreat. Soon after Theudebert had established himself, he sent for Deuteria and married her, but we get the impression this marriage was not a particularly happy one. Gregory relays two harsh stories for us that reveal a bit about Theudebert and what life was like for queens in Merovingian courts. 
I will talk more about queenship next week, but suffice to say, a queen's most important job was to retain the king's interest. If they did so, they sat at the crossroads of power. If they failed, they ran the risk of being replaced and left vulnerable to all the enemies they had made whilst at the king's side. The extreme lengths these women would go to to maintain this position are sometimes shocking. Deuteria apparently worried that her daughter was reaching maturity, and Theudebert might, quote, desire her and take advantage of her, end quote, apparently had her daughter put in a carriage drawn by untamed bulls. The bulls soon rampaged and dragged the carriage off of a cliff and into a river. The young woman drowned. This act of filicide is terrible, but I am sad to say it is far from the last time a woman would kill her own daughter in our story, and far from the most horrifying way. It is also interesting to note that at best, this story is an attempt of Gregory's at slander of Theudebert. At worst, it hides a much more unsettling truth, too awful for even Gregory to describe. Despite this horrifying attempt to keep the king's attention, Deuteria seems to have failed in her efforts. Theudebert's Lombard fiancé had been hanging around court for seven years at this point, and he seems to have grown tired of the whispers about his treatment of her. So, he put aside the aging Deuteria and married the Lombard princess. He did not have her for long, however, as she died soon after the marriage. Did he take his scorned wife back into his bed, though? The woman who had borne him a son, who had given up a husband and a city for him? Nope, he just went and found himself another young bride. Deuteria would never regain her place at his side. Now that Theudebert was firmly entrenched in his position, it was time to get back to the business of the day, backstabbing members of the wider family. And who else to kick it off in this now Theudericless era than everyone's favourite, slimy, side-switching king, Childebert. The king of Paris decided to make an alliance with Theudebert against Clothar, just like he had with his father, Theuderic. This time, however, the dam had been broken, and the two kings apparently had no issue with moving openly to attack their fellow monarch. Clothar, seeing the desperate position he was in, retreated to a forest and fortified himself there, building barricades and praying for salvation. Surrounded by his brother and his nephew's armies, who were making ready for an assault on his makeshift fortifications in the morning, he needed a miracle to stop them from moving in and massacring his forces. Luckily for Clothar, he had some unexpected help. Gregory tells us Clothild, future saint and now fully retired holy person, heard news that her sons were about to shed each other's blood. She prayed for the whole night at the tomb of St. Martin in Tours, on her knees begging the saint to intervene. In the morning, a great storm blew in. Unexpectedly, as the armies were forming up, the storm wreaked havoc on the forces of the two allied kings. Winds blew away their tents, lightning struck around them, 
and they were bombarded by large hailstones that cut at the faces of even the two kings. Their soldiers could do little but shelter under their shields, waiting for it to be over. In the midst of the tempest, Childebert and Theudebert knelt, doing penance to God and begging him to forgive them for planning to hurt their own family. All the while, not a drop fell on Clothar, and his army was completely untouched by the storm. Their horses scattered, and God's fury made very clear, Childebert and Theudebert sued for peace and retreated. Now, it is not my place to question this miracle, as Gregory calls it, but I will nevertheless note a few quick details. First, St. Martin was Gregory's patron saint, his cult was a large part of the prestige and economy of his city of Tours, and Clothild was in her religious retirement there as well. Her holy reputation would help bolster Gregory's city's prestige even after her death. Second, Clothar's men were encamped in a forest, and as the forests of northern France can be rather dense, it is perhaps not all that surprising that they missed the effects of the storm. Third, it is perhaps not only the wrath of God that forced the attacking king's hands towards peace, but also their lack of horses with which to supply themselves and mount the fearsome Frankish cavalry. After this brush with God's wrath, the brothers went back to their cold war and the hot wars outside of their realm. Clothar and Childebert campaigned against the Visigoths. All three Merovingians apparently attacked the Ostrogoths after Theodoric the Great's daughter Amala Swintha was murdered, and Theudebert later took advantage of the Gothic War between the Ostrogoths and the legions of the Eastern Roman Empire, though his campaigns saw much disease and limited successes. This detente of sorts is perhaps not surprising. Both Childebert and Theudebert seemed to have distrusted Clothar, but they also had no love for each other, and Clothar hated both of them for their multiple betrayals, especially Childebert. It would take an unexpected death to break the stalemate, but it was neither of the sons of Clovis, it was Theudebert. After a sudden illness, he died in 548. Given he was the youngest, it is natural to question the circumstances of his death. But poison doesn't seem to have been a favoured method of the Merovingians, at least not yet. It is also worth noting their life expectancy was low, even for kings, and the first appearance of the bubonic plague, sometimes called the Plague of Justinian in this context, was raging through Europe and the Mediterranean in this period. We'll never know for sure, but it is certainly possible Theudebert really did die of an illness. He had reigned for 13 short years. Perhaps having learned from his own troubles, Theudebert seems to have set his son Theudebald in a good position because he ascended to the throne with apparently no trouble from his uncles. He married another daughter of the Lombard king, who was in fact the sister of his father's long-betrothed Lombard wife, and settled in to ruling his part of the kingdom. He was a young king, physically able and healthy, and was set to rule for a long time. But... It seems destiny had another fate in mind for the line of Theuderic. Like his father, Theudebald would suffer an unexpected illness and die young. 
This time, we know what. According to Gregory, he suffered a stroke and was paralysed from the waist downwards. This was as good as a death sentence at the time, and Gregory tells us he deteriorated gradually and died in 555. He had reigned for only seven years. Clothar moved quickly and took over his part of the kingdom, even helping himself to Theudebald's Lombard wife, only relenting from his lustful pursuits when the bishops of the realm put pressure on him to cease laying with his grandnephew's widow. At this point, Childebert was still alive, but Clothar seems to have become the senior king in the realm, despite being the youngest of Clovis's four sons. Gregory is likely biased, showing only Clothar's achievements because it is his sons that ruled as he wrote his histories, but Clothar had always been more active and successful than his older brother. He doesn't seem to have made a move against Childebert, despite the fact that the perennial backstabber now had no ally to back him up. Perhaps he really didn't see the Parisian king as a threat. Clothar spent the next three years fighting him back invasions of Saxons, possibly stirred up by Childebert, and sorting out family issues. But it wasn't long before his final victory came. It wasn't at the end of a sword, or due to his scheming, or even exercising his ruthless streak. Again, his ally was disease. In 558, Childebert, no one's favourite son of Clovis, fell ill and died. He had reigned for 47 years. Thus came Clothar's final victory, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Clothar, for all of his scheming, murders, warfare, personal charisma, and military skill, had reunited his father's realm through nothing more than his longevity. This may be disappointing for anyone who is hoping for a dramatic showdown between the brothers, but I must point out that living well into his 60s, where most people were lucky to reach 40, was no mean feat. In the wild, chaotic, and deadly years of the Merovingian period, the most important skill was surviving, and the most significant figures are those who simply managed to stay alive and outlast their enemies. For all the horrifying things he had done, Clothar would live for only three more years, and would spend the whole time dealing with family strife. Poor reward for finally reuniting his father's realm. We're not going to delve into his last years, and the conflicts between the sons of Clothar next week though. We're going to take a break from brotherly conflict, and talk about two women who have appeared in our story, but whose importance has been somewhat glossed over. The two queens, Clothild and Radegund. With these famous queens, we will get a glimpse at what life was like for women in the Frankish courts, how societal change allowed them to amass and use power, and how they eventually became canonized by the church. It'll be lighter on the warfare, but give us a new perspective of the period. See you then.